You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing the stalking murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Mystery Still Unsolved. We've reached the double digits, baby. I can't believe that we've gathered together every Tuesday for the last 10 weeks. In some ways, it feels like a long time ago that we began, but in other ways, I feel like it was only yesterday when this little dream of mine came to fruition. I am so excited to be here with you all today on the first day of fall. How are you guys feeling about it being fall? I know some people love it. That's me. I'm basic and other people hate it. My mom gets so mad on September 1st, not because she doesn't like fall, but because she doesn't like, wait for it, pumpkin spice. She absolutely loathes it. I'm neither here nor there about it. I don't seek it out like a moth to a flame, like most uh, women at Trader Joe's. But if there's a pumpkin spice donut in my house, I mean, I'm going to eat it. I must admit that I prefer crisp fall apples to pumpkin spice. But hey, besides being a true crime aficionado, I'm also an avid foodie. So I don't really discriminate when it comes to food. I'll try it all. Well, at least once. Since fall is my favorite holiday and today is the first day of fall, I want to do a fall giveaway. My short-term goal is to get over 100 followers and on the Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved and only you guys can help me by spreading the word. So here's how you can help me out. Today, after you're done listening to the episode, tag me in a story on your Instagram or Facebook and just tell or write what you love about this podcast. Make sure to tag me in it. If your account is private, take a quick screenshot of it and send it over to me. Everyone who does this will enter a giveaway and next week I'll announce the winner. The winner will receive a $20 gift card to Trader Joe's, the fall palace of pumpkin spice things. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but yeah, hop on it. We covered some pretty crazy cases last week, and the case I have for you today is also a wild one, but before we get into it, I wanted to go over some updates and information about the pre- about some previous cases that we've discussed. Okay, so last week, a French article was posted about none other than Xavier Dupont de Légonis. The article was in French, but of course my curious mind couldn't help but throw that entire article into Google Translate, and it honestly did surprisingly well with the Google Translation. I learned that last Tuesday, September 15th, a new French documentary was released about the family, and there have been some startling discoveries that were not mentioned in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. For example, thanks to the resources of director Pierre Acnine, Acnine, I don't know, my French people can tell me if I'm saying that right or wrong. We learned that Xavier wrote a huge mass of messages, emails, and comments on public forums, and they kind of dabbled into that in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, but they give more information in this documentary. Um, Apparently, he posted a lot of comments on public forums in the year leading up to his family's death and his subsequent disappearance. For example, Xavier wrote hundreds of comments on a Catholic site where he writes about this notion of sacrifice. It seemed to be the main theme of his comments. The new French documentary also goes over 
and shows you some letters, including those that Xavier had his own wife write for him. The crew also learns that Xavier was kind of psychotic towards the end in that he had notebooks filled with lists of how much each of his children had cost him since their births. And I just think that's a little insane. From this, we can only imagine a scene of Xavier like having this mental manipulation over his family and that he may have been constantly... He may have constantly made their very existence feel like a burden. Newsflash, Xavier, your kids didn't decide to be born into your family. If you didn't want to have kids, then maybe you should have tried to be a little bit more responsible during your horizontal tangos, just saying. In an interview by Society Magazine, a close friend of Agnes named Sophia recounts a dinner that she had with Xavier and Agnes shortly before they all disappeared. Sophie tells us that they met up for dinner one night and that it was super awkward. She recalls that the atmosphere was quite heavy and murky. She said Xavier didn't say anything the entire evening and it was pretty uncomfortable for her and her husband. According to Sophie, she had the feeling that everything had been orchestrated in such a way that the Legoness um, home like it basically seemed like they were like trying really, really hard to prove that everything was well with them when it was clear by a mile, by a long shot, that nothing was normal about that night or the family at that time. Okay, another update is that with Alonzo Brooks from episode two, No Ride Home. The recent ME report has more questions now than they had before. All right, so as we've mentioned before, after Alonzo Brooks' case appeared on Unsolved Mysteries, his body was exhumed for another look, and the new ME noted something that we had talked about in his episode. Alonzo's body did not show signs that his body had been in the water, although it was found near the creek. We know that, but he also notes that a, yikes, trigger warning in, in case you have kids near you or you're at work, or whatevs, a chunk of his neck was missing. Now, why on earth would that be? Well, that sketchy first ME, you know, the one that got fired from SU for collecting organs without people's consent and not putting the skeletons back where they belonged, claims that that it was animal activity. But how many animals do you know of that only eat the skin on the neck? And if it's an animal that likes fattiness, why not go for the ears and the lips, etc.? I, as well as many others in the true crime community, believe that there's only one answer. The neck flesh missing is no coincidence. Something happened to Alonzo, and by removing that piece of his body, it was the killer's way of concealing their tracks, which reminded me of those two people of interest. Remember those two brothers who had drunkenly bragged about killing a black man using a dog shot collar? That seems probable to me. I think we need to take a closer look at those guys, but it could also be someone's handprints from strangulation. Maybe that's why it was removed. Only time will tell, but I will of course keep you updated. There is a small update on the Ray Rivera case. Remember a few weeks ago, I let you know that while Ray's computer was in custody, somebody kept calling to inquire about it and wanted to come in and pick it up. Up to this point, the department would not reveal if they ever got any information about the person who made the call, but the director of the Ray Rivera episode just released some incredible information, a name. Apparently, the person who called multiple times inquiring about the computer identified himself as Ray. And obviously, I don't think Ray himself called to inquire about them, but it seems it was someone either posing as Ray or just using that name to throw people off. But seriously, that's pretty creepy and interesting. It's also been recently released that the director of the Patrice Andres episode said something really piqued his interest about Rob. Something really stood out to him during Rob's interview. He basically says that 
you know, I mean, Rob admits, you can watch it on the episode now that within 24 hours, all the locks to his home have been changed. So this means that while the whole town was out there searching and very much hopeful that Patrice was still alive, Rob was at home, not searching, but instead changing his locks. If you think your wife might come home, why change the locks unless you know that she won't be coming back? Okay, one more. Brian Martin, the lead investigator in the Gary McCullough case, has publicly stated that he believes Lena confession, Lena's confession to Alfred, Gary's brother, that was caught on an audio recorder, is in fact false. He notes the inconsistencies that we all noted as well in episode 6, but he is still trying to figure out why Lena would lie. What would she have to gain? Some think that Sandy put her up to it. Others think maybe she wanted to get her mom and Chris Klemp in trouble and confess, but she didn't have all the information, so she filled in the gaps by guessing. We really just don't know at this time. Oh yeah, and this is seriously the last one. Jewel Taylor is still creepy. (laughs) I just wanted to be known on the record that I still believe that to be true. All right. So, so many updates on these cases, but that is a great thing, right? The more updates we can get, the closer we can get to figuring out what the hell happened to all of these amazing people. So this week's episode is a listener request. So shout out to Maria. Thank you so much for letting me know about this case. I had never heard about it before, but out of the couple that she sent me, this is the one that really stood out to me the most because of how eerie it is. If you have any cases that you think I should cover, follow us on Instagram at mystery still unsolved and send me a message. I love getting a feel for the cases that you all want me to cover. I decided to call this episode the stalker murder. And if you look at the title of the name, note that the, the ER and murder has like a period in between it. Um, and this is because you will learn more about this later on in the episode, but it's thought that Dorothy Jane Scott is thought to have been abducted from an ER parking lot. So that's what that period in between the ER is all about. I'm not so much fishing for compliments as I am demanding one for that sort of creativity. So yeah, I hope you notice how innovative I am. (laughs) I do it for you guys. Again, this is the case of Dorothy Jane Scott. This case is one of the most disturbing cases I've come across in a long time, but it seems to get little mainstream media attention. It honestly seems straight out of a horror movie. It's so insane. It's almost hard to believe that it's real, but unfortunately, it is real. Well, enough chat. Let's get into it, shall we? Dorothy Jane Scott went missing on May 28, 1980, under very suspicious circumstances. Dorothy had a stalker, someone who called her daily with some seriously specific details about her life. Dorothy grew up in the 1960s. Her parents have described her as being about all about that hippie life. She was a freedom fighter. She fought for human rights, racial equality, and women's rights, which basically means that she was a total badass way before her time, and I like her already. In 1976, she had her son, Sean, and after that, while she was already more introverted at heart, she decided to really settle down so that she could be present and and be an involved mom. She also went from living that hippie, free spirit life to what her friends refer to as, quote unquote, finding Jesus. She became deeply religious after her son, Sean, was born. Another friend said that she found Dorothy's life to be as exciting as reading through the phone book. But Dorothy enjoyed it that way. In 1980, Dorothy Jane Scott was living with her aunt and her four-year-old son, Sean, in Anaheim, California. 
Sean's father, Dennis, wasn't really ever in the picture. Dorothy's brother described her as being a very kind person. The word give exemplified her life. She was always giving and doing for others, no matter what it cost her. Again, guys, why do all the sweetheart angels in the world, the people we actually need more of, always get taken from us too soon? It's so freaking tragic. Dorothy worked at a place called Swingers, which had been previously owned by her father, who was now retired. Swingers was kind of like a hippie type of shop. They sold love beads, lava lamps, incense, and that sort of thing. Based on articles that I read, the shop was basically right across from Disneyland, so seems pretty fun. Even though her dad sold the business, Dorothy continued to work there as a back office secretary. Dorothy also loved to design clothing. She would procure curtains and fabrics from thrift shops and transform them into cool vintage pieces. Early on in 1980, Dorothy started to receive some unsettling phone calls from a man both at her work and at home. At first, she wrote them off as nothing but an irritating annoyance, but told family members that while she didn't know who the person was exactly, she did recognize the voice, but for the life of her, she just couldn't place it. Sometimes the unknown caller was kind and doting. He would admit kind of coyly how much he absolutely adored her and wanted to be with her. However, other times the calls were angry, resentful, and threatening. One night, the man called her at work and told her to go outside to her car, which she did. No, baby girl, no. It was there on the windshield of her car that she found a dead red rose placed on top of the windshield. Another time he called, he threatened her by saying, quote, okay, one of these days you're going to come my way. I'll get you alone and I'll cut you into bits. That way no one will ever find you. Oh my gosh. I don't think I'd ever answer the phone ever again. (laughs) He called her pretty much on a daily basis. And when he would call, he would accurately tell her what she was wearing that day. He knew her routine, he knew where she went, and every single person she spoke to. So this person was either interacting with her every day without her knowing, or he was watching her from afar every single day. I don't know if any of these instances were reported to the police, as articles are unclear and most don't seem to mention it. Now, it's important to note that stalking was not really taken seriously in the United States by law enforcement into the mid to late 90s, because it's very difficult to prove. Often, we've heard police say that there's nothing that they can do unless there's a true threat, which... I don't even know what that means. I feel like that phrase is very much up to interpretation. And to me, having someone call me and tell me that they want to get me alone so they can chop up my body into little bits is a true threat in my eyes. I don't know about you guys. Laws in the U.S. regarding stalking have definitely gotten better over the years, but let's be real. They still suck. It is incredibly difficult to successfully prosecute stalking cases. We need to get this-ish sorted out because I can't even imagine how much violence could be prevented if stalking were to be taken more seriously in the eyes of the law. Dorothy began to get really frightened, 
obviously. She began to take um, self-defense classes. She was considering purchasing a gun, even though she had always been very much anti-gun. It appears from multiple articles that I read that the main reason she decided not to purchase one was because she was worried about her four-year-old son finding it. She was, you know, very involved mom, wanted to make sure things were safe for him. And so even though she really wanted to get one to defend herself, she just was like not comfortable about having a firearm in her home. But one evening, Dorothy left work in the early afternoon and had to return to work later that night for like a work meeting. She swung by her parents' home to drop off her little boy, Sean, which was normal because her mother watched her son while she was at work. She arrived at the meeting and nothing seemed out of the ordinary until she noticed that one of her co-workers, Conrad Bostrin, he didn't look so good. He said he wasn't feeling well and he looked the part too. He also had a red mark on his arm that looked to be like a spreading rash. Dorothy and another co-worker decided that it would be best to take Conrad to the hospital as Conrad seemed to be getting worse and worse as the meeting went on. The three decided to take Dorothy's car, and by Dorothy's insistence, they had to stop by her parents' home to let them know what was going on and why she would need them to watch Sean for a little bit longer. Now, I know that this all happened before cell phones and everything, so it wasn't as easy to communicate with people on the fly, but Conrad has to get to the hospital. Why didn't she decide to call while they were at work? Or why couldn't she wait to call her family from a payphone at the hospital? Was it just a convenience thing? Maybe the hospital was on the way? Or was there another true and undisclosed motive to why Dorothy felt the need to see Sean in person? Had she experienced something early on in the day that tipped her off that something might not be right? Nothing seemed out of the ordinary when she went to her parents, though, um, and she checked on Sean. Everyone was fine, but oddly enough, Dorothy changed her black scarf that she'd been wearing all day to a red one, which seems pretty unimportant, but they mention it a lot in all the articles that I read. At the hospital, Conrad learned that he had been bitten by a black widow spider. Ugh! One of my biggest fears. Knock on wood. We've never had a black widow spider inside of our home, but my husband has seen one outside while landscaping, and seriously, I die. I hate spiders. But you should know that in the 70s and 80s, apparently nurses and doctors would often write, often code a bad injection from like doing illicit drugs as a spider bite so that the patient wouldn't get in like criminal trouble. So I'm not sure if this particular case was a code, but I did think you guys should know because I just thought it was interesting. So I don't really know if it was a true spider bite or if they were just coding it as a spider bite. While Conrad was being seen, Dorothy and her friends sat in the waiting room reading magazines and chit-chatting. After Conrad was discharged, Conrad and the other friend got into the pharmacy line within the hospital to pick up the antibiotics that he would need. While her friends waited, Dorothy decided to go and pull the car around so that way her friend Conrad wouldn't have to walk very far. While he was doing a bit better, he was still feeling pretty weak. But after Conrad and the friend retrieved the medication and headed outside to join Dorothy, she was nowhere to be found. They waited a bit, thinking maybe she was on her way. The two admit that they began to get irritated. It had been a long night. Everybody was tired. Finally, they saw Dorothy's car driving towards them. They were able to let out a sigh of relief, but only for a moment. You see, as the car came towards them, the car's high beams were on, and it 
the car wasn't showing any signs of slowing down. In fact, the car was driving way too fast to be driving through a hospital parking lot. They waved their arms frantically in the air to get Dorothy's attention. However, her car just zoomed past them. Unfortunately, due to the high beams being on, they were unable to see inside of the vehicle. They watched in disbelief as the car exited the parking lot and took a hard right. Okay, this next bit confuses the hell out of me. After witnessing this, the two think Dorothy has forgotten something and that she'll be right back. And then they wait two hours before alerting hospital security. And I'm not saying they were involved or anything or using this as an alibi, but seriously, who the heck knows? But you better believe that I personally would not wait two hours in a parking lot after witnessing what I just witnessed to report it to someone. One, because I'd be worried about my friend, and two, because I'd want to get home. I would have called a cab because I hate hospitals. They are seriously the freaking worst. It's so freaking bright and germ-infested in there. Nope, nope, nope. I'd rather get a ladies' exam than be stranded at a hospital. Uh, They then called Dorothy's parents after alerting security to see if they had seen or heard from her, and they had not. So obviously, once they learned that Dorothy was nowhere to be found, her parents called the police. All right, so Dorothy's parents initially met with resistance from the police, and we've seen this a lot in the cases that we've covered thus far. Adults are well within their legal rights to go missing if they want to go missing. The police can't look into every little case of someone not returning home after two hours, but this makes it hard to weed out the oopsie, there she is now, and the cases that really need immediate attention. The police insisted that Dorothy probably had a date and she didn't want to be late for it, or maybe she went out drinking with friends. But Dorothy's parents knew that this was not the case. It was already after 10 p.m. and Dorothy was usually home well before that to spend time with her son. Dorothy lived a simple life dedicated to Sean. She wasn't seeing anyone and she wasn't a partier. Dorothy's parents knew something wasn't right, but they couldn't get the police to believe them. Well... Until Dorothy's 1973 white Toyota station wagon was found miles away in an alley in Santa Ana, California, completely engulfed in flames. Sound familiar? Aileen Conway from last week, apparently the person involved in this case, was taking notes in my last episode, and he knew a thing or two about fire and evidence. Although contrary to Aileen's case, Dorothy's belongings were found inside the car. Dorothy was not. With this information, the police finally decided to take the case seriously and investigate, but they warned Dorothy's parents that they needed to keep any information about this on the down low. They advised Dorothy's parents to stay away from the media as they believed it would negatively affect their investigation. I also read in another article that another possible reason police would have requested Dorothy's parents to stay away from the media was that police very much believed that Dorothy had been kidnapped and that she was still alive, and they were worried that if the kidnapper got word on the news, he might get spooked and dispose of Dorothy. They very well might have been trying to keep her alive. About a week later, Dorothy's mother, Vera, answered a phone call when Dorothy's dad, Jacob, was not home. When she said hello, a man on the other line asked her if she was at all related to Dorothy Jane Scott. Vera said yes. She thought that this could be an investigator with information about Dorothy, but it wasn't. The voice on the other line said, I've got her, and hung up. 
When Jacob learned about the call, he made a decision. He went to the press, a newspaper to be exact. The newspaper wrote an article about Dorothy's disappearance and the same day it was published. The newspaper editor at the time, Pat Riley, received a phone call from a mysterious male caller. This person wanted to talk to Pat about Dorothy. He told Pat Riley, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I found out that she cheated on me with another man. She kept denying having somebody else. I killed her. And then the man hung up. Dorothy's parents were baffled because Dorothy did not have a boyfriend. And she hadn't had a boyfriend in a long time, like since before Sean was born. Was this a real tip or just a false confession? Pat Riley, the editor, believes that the call was made by someone genuine because the caller knew things only someone who had been with Dorothy the night she went missing would know. For instance, he knew that she was wearing a red scarf. He knew that she had taken Conrad to the hospital that night to be treated for a black widow spider bite. He claimed that Dorothy had called him from the hospital's payphone to relay this information to him. When the two co-workers were asked to verify this information, the friend said Dorothy and her had been together the entire time, except for a few minutes before they left when the friend had used the restroom. But this mysterious caller couldn't or wouldn't go away. He continued to call Dorothy's mother, Vera, every single Wednesday for, hold on to your butts, people, four freaking years. Are you kidding me? But the man would only call when Vera was home alone, never when Jacob was there. How did the man know when to call? Had he shifted his stalking mannerisms from Dorothy to Vera? It appeared so. Because of the consistency of the phone calls, Dorothy's parents attempted to trace the call by allowing police to tap their phone line. However, this person was either suspicious or knew how to avoid getting caught this way because he would always hang up right before the call could be traced. When he talked to Dorothy's mother, he would tell her horrible things about Dorothy's fate. He seemed to get a perverted pleasure from Mrs. Scott's reactions. He told Vera that he was keeping her prisoner and torturing her. So now we know he's lying. Either that he lied to Pat Riley when he said that she was already dead, or he's lying to Vera now and attempting to convince her that she's still alive. Either way, he's a liar, liar, pants on fire. One time on a Wednesday, Jacob was home when the caller called. It had always been assumed that the unknown caller was the stalker who had been stalking Dorothy for months before her disappearance. When Jacob answered the phone, the caller said nothing for a few moments and then he hung up. After that, the calls stopped for a time. Later that year, about four or five months later, so we're in 1984 now, Dorothy's scattered remains were found in Anaheim by some construction workers. In some reports that I found, the remains were apparently charred, but they probably weren't placed into its like makeshift grave that way. I guess that there had been a brush fire about two years before her discovery, so the police knew Dorothy had been in that spot for at least two years, maybe more. An autopsy was conducted and the cause of death could not be identified by Dorothy's remains. There was also a watch that had stopped at 12.30 a.m. on May 29, 1980. Dorothy had gone missing the night before. I should also note that buried a few feet above her body were the skeletal remains of a dog. There was also a turquoise ring that Vera was able to confirm was her daughter's. 
Some speculate that the placement of the dog was definitely not a coincidence. I think that the dog was placed there as a way to throw off canine and law enforcement. If canines smelled human remains and signaled to that spot in the ground, chances are officers would dig until they got to the dog bones and think, oh, these are just the remains of a dog and the dogs picked up on this and discontinued their digging. It should also be noted that a few months after Dorothy's remains were found, the skeletal remains of Tracy Hobbs were found three and a half miles away. And I think it would be pretty coincidental for these two remains to be found so closely and be unrelated. Were the two women killed and buried by the same person? Had police unearthed a killer's secret burial site? Also, after the discovery of Dorothy's remains, the man only called Vera two more times, sarcastically asking, is Dorothy home? And then hanging up. Some people believe that the unknown man, who we strongly believe was involved in Dorothy's death, kind of screwed himself over by killing Dorothy. Remember, he'd become obsessed with her for so long that when she was no longer here, he had to maintain a connection to Dorothy somehow. Some believe this is why he called Vera for so long, because maybe he thought Vera sounded like Dorothy. Maybe they looked similar. Maybe it was just his sick way of trying to be near someone who was deeply connected to Dorothy. Well, maybe you should, you should have thought of that before you murdered her, you freak. Obviously, like with most cases, Dorothy's ex was a person of interest in the case, but he was able to prove that on the night of Dorothy's disappearance, he wasn't in California at all, but he was in fact visiting family in Missouri. I think he was able to prove this through like flight records and also through like some people who had been with him that night. Police decided to officially determine that Dorothy had been the victim of an extreme stalker. Yeah, no crap. And they believed this person had kidnapped Dorothy and killed her. The main reason they believed this unknown caller was not just some loser looking for his 15 minutes of fame was because the unknown caller knew that Dorothy had worn a black scarf earlier in the day, but after checking on Sean had changed the scarf to a red one. This is information that someone would only know if they had been watching her or if he was someone that was close to her. The man claimed via newspaper articles that he was Dorothy's boyfriend, but friends and family all collaborate that Dorothy did not have a boyfriend. She worked all day and was home all night. When would she have time to date and cultivate this so-called relationship? Again, Dorothy lived a very simple, some might say boring life. It was work, church, home, repeat. Work, church, home, repeat. Keep in mind that when Dorothy was alive, she lived with her aunt, so whoever had been watching Dorothy knew where she lived and knew where her parents lived. He also appears to have continued watching Dorothy's relatives after taking her because he knew when to call when Vera would be home alone. Some people speculate that when Jacob answered the phone, the caller thought that the Scots had moved, but I'm going to raise the BS flag to this one because this guy had been watching the house and calling every Wednesday for four years. I think he would know if they moved. It's more likely that when Jacob answered the phone, it spooked the caller. Perhaps because the caller knew Jacob would recognize his voice. I think this could mean that whoever this caller is, whoever became infatuated with Dorothy and kidnapped her and killed her, was someone involved in the place Dorothy worked and the place Jacob had once owned. Swingers. Was it someone they had worked with? Was it a customer? Remember when Dorothy recalled the voice to her family? She said it was a voice she knew, but she just couldn't place. This could make a lot of sense. Keep in mind that even though Jacob had retired and sold his business to a new owner, the new owner had allowed Jacob to stay on the payroll as a handyman of sorts. So Jacob was still familiar with the new faces coming and going. 
but it might not have been someone from work. Could it have been a new mailman, a sanitation worker, a new member of the church congregation? Who became so obsessed with Dorothy? Now, there are some ideas floating around the interwebs that Dorothy's friends, including Conrad, could be involved. So let's delve into that. So when Dorothy volunteers to take Conrad to the hospital, why did the other woman agree to go too? What was the relationship Dorothy had with Conrad? What about her relationship with a woman? What relationship, if any, did Conrad and the woman have with each other? Could this have been the plan all along so that, they, that the two could alibi each other? Now the only reason we think that Conrad was being tra- treated for a spider bite was because Conrad said so. But to my knowledge, we have never seen hospital records that prove that this was truly the case. Did the police investigate this or did they just take Conrad's word for it because they met Conrad at the friend of the hospital? Also, why did they supposedly wait at the hospital for two hours in the parking lot after seeing Dorothy drive off? Is this just a story that they concocted to give themselves an alibi? Why report it to security before calling your parents? Any normal person would have think that they got would have thought that they got ditched at the hospital and call a cab. Why wait around for two hours and get hospital security involved? Was it to create another alibi for themselves? Was Dorothy abducted in the parking lot and the stalker was the one driving? Or had the stalker placed a note on her car, informing her that if she didn't meet him somewhere right now, that he would put her son in danger? That's one way to get a mom to speed out of a parking lot. Also, did the person driving conceal their face by using the high beams because they didn't want Conrad and the other woman to get a good look at their face? Or was it because he knew that Conrad and the woman would recognize him? You should know that there was a shop that was adjoined to Swingers. Could it be someone who worked over there that Jacob and Conrad and the other woman would have recognized? Also, remember that Dorothy worked in the back office of the store, so she didn't really interact with customers a whole ton. Is it possible that a delivery man, a vendor, or someone from next door is the culprit? Someone who didn't say too much to Dorothy, maybe just like, hello, or good morning. Maybe this is why the voice seemed familiar to Dorothy, because she had heard it daily for years, but hadn't spoken to the person enough that it would really register. Or could it just be an absolute stranger who developed a crazy obsession with her? Someone who just happened to see her at a grocery store? Or, wink wink, a bookstore? (laughs) You reference anyone? I honestly can't decide which option seems more terrifying to me. Both ideas, both options give me nightmares. We also should note that the Night Stalker, aka the Golden State Killer, was active during this time in California. Apparently, there are ties to another couple that he has been linked with that were discovered at the exact hospital Dorothy was possibly abducted from. We now know that the Golden State Killer was a police officer at the time. Was this a location that Joseph James D'Angelo searched for his next victims? I mean, think about it. It wouldn't be all that unusual for a police car to be seen hanging out in a hospital parking lot for long periods of time. No one would think twice of it. If Dorothy was approached by a man in uniform, she probably wouldn't have felt threatened. Could he have lulled her into a false sense of security before attacking her? But does this account for the caller knowing all this information about Dorothy? You betcha. D'Angelo was known for stalking his victims sometimes up to months before murdering them, so it's definitely possible. Maybe Joseph used his resources within the police force to get Vera's number. Maybe this is how the caller seemed to have such precise information about how to not be traced when a phone line was being tapped. 
Another person of interest is Mike Butler. Mike moved to California in his 20s and shortly after procured a job as a mechanic. It's rumored that Mike was kind of a weird guy. He was socially awkward. He might have even had some mental health issues, but more notably, his sister worked with Dorothy. It's reported that Mike was also involved in some cult activity, which I don't really know if that means he really was, or maybe he just wore too much black. (laughs) Also, it's reported that around the corner from Swingers, there was an automotive repair shop. Is it the same place Mike Butler worked at? I can't be 100% sure, but it definitely could have been. If Mike Butler was involved, he has taken a secret to the grave because he unfortunately passed away years ago. Could this be why the phone calls stopped with Vera's mother? Dorothy Scott was absolutely stunning, and so it makes sense that someone would notice her and become attracted to her. Also, not only was she beautiful, but she was kind. She was friendly and sweet. Is it possible that someone took her kindness and friendliness and just a couple of conversations that she might have had with them as a sign that she was interested in something more? Is this how the stalker began to think that the two of them were in a relationship? Whoever this person was is clearly disturbed. He took her kindness as flirtation. He watched her constantly. He called her and told her to go outside because he had placed a dead rose on her car. A rose itself would have been creepy enough, but a dead one? Come on. Then it's possible that this person may have seen Dorothy and Conrad get into a car together and just completely lost his mind. Ew. I have no words other than ew. This case happened over 40 years ago. Dorothy was only 32 at the age of her death, and she not only left behind devoted parents and extended family, but a young four-year-old son who is now a man. Considering Dorothy's giving nature and devotion to family, I have a feeling she would have been a really great mother to Sean. I imagine that they would have had a close relationship. Imagine all the good she could have done for others if her life had not been cut short. All right. What do you, I think? Hmm. What do I think? What do I think? Um, in my personal opinion, I, I think that this guy had to have been a loner. Someone who lived at home. Alone, maybe with his, like, mom. He, like, lived in the basement or something. And I don't think he had very many personal relationships. I think that this level of obsession that he had with Dorothy would take up a lot of his time. And if this person was in a relationship with someone or had close family relationships, I can't imagine that those people would, wouldn't have noticed a monumental behavioral or personality shift in him. His stalking tendencies obviously, obviously didn't end with Dorothy. You, you just cannot be this obsessed with one woman one family and then like get over it and go on to live like a normal life so it's so obvious to me that he must have moved on to another woman or other women um after dorothy you can't hide or just stop that level of of obsession this is not something a person can just get out of their system and never do again it's creepy to think that he perhaps even duped a woman into entering a real relationship The woman obviously would not have known just how much he liked her, kind of like Joe and you, aka he just was probably seriously obsessed with her, but I imagine any relationships he was in were romantic and swell at first, but would have quickly become quite controlling. 
He was most likely aggressive towards them. He would quickly attempt to isolate them from family and friends and would most likely spiral into jealous rages if they did something that he deemed to be inappropriate in their relationship, such as smiling or engaging in a conversation with a neighbor or, you know, maybe she did her makeup a little too well for work for his liking. Is it possible this man has died, moved away? been arrested for a separate crime and just hasn't been linked to this particular case? Maybe. But maybe he's still out there, stalking his next victim. But these are just my two cents. I want to hear yours. Write a comment on the post today at Unsolved on Instagram. This is the type of case that seriously irks me, not only because uh, stalkers are creepy, but because I really just want resolution for her and her family, and there just isn't much information at all. Let's just keep our fingers crossed. As far as I can tell, there is no DNA from this crime scene. The police have little to no information to go on. I don't know if this case will ever be solved. It's been about 40 years now, and there are currently zero leads. Thank you so much, Maria, for suggesting this case. I had never heard of it until now, and now it's going to haunt my dreams forever. So thank you for that, I guess. If you want to send me a suggestion, do so by following me on Instagram at mysterystillunsolved and post a comment or shoot me a message. Also, don't forget to tag me in your Facebook or Instagram stories today for a chance to win a $20 gift card to Trader Joe's. Remember, if your account is private, Please, please, please send me a message with a screenshot and don't forget to tag at Mystery Still Unsolved in the post or your story. That's like the most important part. Um, Join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved?